Hey everyone, and welcome to the Legends of Retail podcast presented by Convictional. We talk to leaders in retail and e-commerce so you can learn from them and take their insights back to your company. I'm your host, Chris Grushy, and we're about to get into an episode with Roger Kirkness. Roger Kirkness is none other than my business partner. And we have an interesting conversation about his unconventional upbringing, the hard engineering problems in B2B trade, and decisions around using email only instead of Slack at his company, our company, Convictional. I hope you enjoy. Roger, what's your favorite food? Chana masala. Chana masala. How do you make that? So I actually do know how to make it. You take like onions, canned tomatoes, I think it's like jalapeno peppers, and then a bunch of different spices like garum and chili, and you like basically soup them all together. And then you put two cans of chickpeas in, and then once you're done that, you uh, have to like cook it down. So I learned what reducing means, which just means like reducing the water. And then, uh, yeah, that's like the only thing I can make. So it's <laughs> a pretty tasty thing to make. Not your typical first meal that one learns, which is probably for most people like, I don't know, spaghetti or craft dinner or something. Thanks for joining the podcast. We're going to have a conversation about your life experiences and convictional, what we do, and more specifically, like how we're approaching building the business and the culture. So hopefully that sounds good. And we'll jump into your background, which, you know, Roger, we started convictional together four years ago now. I don't know where the time went, but it's four years. And but before that, like way early back, you were this outlier in, I guess, school in the in your childhood because you didn't go to school and then you went to high school for three years. So can you talk a little bit more about like what unschooling is and why your parents felt that was like the best path for you at the time? Yeah, I mean, my parents felt that in their careers as entrepreneurs that really the things that they learned that were most valuable to starting and running companies were not things that they were able to learn at school. Both of them have MBAs so like took a pretty traditional path to understanding business. And as kids, they basically told us that like school was going to be value neutral if we wanted to do things that were new. And we had to have, you know, basically beliefs that were different and that the way to form those beliefs and think critically was to not expose yourself too early to like another another way of thinking beyond the one that you naturally held. And so until we were 12, specifically until I was 12, we did no formal instruction at all. And I remember, and the team will probably resent this a bit, but one of the touchstones of convictional culture is like weekly updates. And so essentially from the age of like six, I had a laptop that I had to write weekly updates on. And so no matter what I did, whether it was like play with rocks or dinosaurs or like, you know, uh, run around in the forest. I had to like write on a weekly basis about what I learned from that experience. And that was what it was like pretty much until I was 12. And around when I was 12, I decided that I had more to learn from people than I had to learn from kind of my own individual uh, endeavors and decided to go to school. I spent one year in a private school kind of going hard academically and found that it took me, you know, a few months to basically catch up to where the other students were. And I really took it seriously and cared. And I found that that did not lead to what I expected in terms of social life. And so I, I kind of reset and went to like the local public school and looked at it rather than competing on, you know, like marks and outcomes, just basically trying to talk to people and meet them and like get to know them and, and like develop myself socially. 
And that's pretty much what I did from that age, kind of like grade eight here until until grade 10. I think at a certain point, I realized that the things that I wanted were kind of gated by adulthood. And when I looked at it, you know, there's like no law saying you can't work productively past a certain age. And so I basically just said, I'm going to get high school done as fast as I possibly can. And then in doing so, hopefully like access adult life sooner. That's awesome. It sounds like you're learning throughout childhood and, you know, your early adolescence was driven by purely what you wanted to learn about. It was just based on interests. And at a certain point, it shifted to just the, the trappings of adulthood. And so you, you got there as fast as possible. But if you think about your early childhood experiences, like how did you decide that early on in life what to learn about? Because your parents basically gave you freedom to pick and choose. It's a good question. It's more stressful than people think to have to answer that question for yourself because you do have to consider whether you just do the short-term thing or long-term. And I remember one thing that my parents would do is like kind of challenge our beliefs by giving us too much of what we perceive to be a good thing and allowing us to learn from why that might not be the best thing for our life. So like video games, for example, past a certain point, we could play it as much as we wanted. And I remember how unsatisfying it was to be able to play video games all the time. Like you'd think in theory it was great, but after a few weeks of it, it was just soul crushingly boring. And and so I think that showed me not only, you know, short term kind of maybe video games all the time is not the best way to lead your life, but also maybe the things that the, the kinds of freedoms that people seek when they're adults like retirement, maybe that's not actually going to be a source of satisfaction. And, and that is when I really started reading books is to understand, you know, if if like leisure and doing things that I think are fun all the time is not going to lead to a satisfying life, like what is basically starting to ask that like existential question. And, and yeah, from that was around when I was like 10. So I think from then on, I, I spent more time reading and still mostly read as opposed to game. I don't know. It's like a really formative lesson. <laughs> and I remember in conversations with friends, you sharing stories about how you actually learn to read, which I thought I've always felt is fascinating. But it sounds like the you know, desire to not be bored by, you know, video games because they were widely available led to sort of just a force of will to learn how to read. What was that like for you? How did you learn how to read without formal instruction? That, that was another thing is that there's this kind of like movement towards like paleo learning in kids that essentially if you look at countries that we, you know, call uh, underdeveloped, that at a certain point, kids in those countries do adopt like reading, writing and math. And it takes about 100 hours of deliberate practice. And so I think a lot of the reason it takes so much time for people to learn certain topics where we're from is that we learn them at the earliest possible age you can rather than when you choose to for reasons of like utility. And so I just had no interest in reading. And so I never learned to. And I was never asked to, so it didn't occur to me that it would be, you know, necessary or that my peers were learning. And so I didn't learn to read until I was almost 10, which is like ridiculously late, right? I think if I was in school, that would be not okay. But at the same time, you know, I, I had this like motivation to learn about things that I cared about that led me to learn to read. And it really, you know, it didn't take anyone's formal effort beyond a couple of days of, of kind of exposing me to the right things that I would need to bridge into uh, long form books. And I remember when I did ultimately go to school in grade seven, I was essentially the fastest reader. And there's some arguments that learning to read naturally, you kind of speed read by looking at the shapes of words. If you learn phonics, you never learn to read that way. I know a lot of adults like use YouTube videos to teach themselves to speed read. So I think there's arguments on both sides. But yeah, for me, it was very motivated by I wanted the content of the books to be like in my brain and to understand. 
And that didn't occur for me until, you know, much later than most people. One of the patterns that's becoming clear to me in this conversation is that to basically achieve a goal, right, out of kind of self-interest, there's this element of push through whatever roadblocks stand in the way to get what you want, right? So if it's reading or if it's just like the content of the book that I want to have to entertain myself, I have to learn how to read. And so got to, you know, solve that problem. Do you see this pattern emerge in business? I do see this pattern emerge in business. I guess the word that I've been using a lot to describe our style, in particular mine, but also just the way that we've thought about focusing is that we're not superstitious. So a lot of companies create problems for themselves because they have these sort of arbitrary beliefs that may not be, that may have side effects that they're not willing to recognize. And one of the ones I was thinking about was how people give promotions. So a lot of companies have like a 12 month cycle for giving promotions. And I don't think that's invalid because it, it allows you to establish some amount of fairness across the team. So what you don't want is like your extroverts pushing really hard to get bigger comp and you got some introverted people and just people who don't push as hard who who end up getting paid less. And so it's this like constant cycle of making sure those people aren't missed. But at the same time, if someone's clearly doing a good job, you should consider kind of what it would cost to replace that person and try and essentially reprice them. No one really appreciates being repriced down, so you can't like give people pay cuts. But if they're doing a good job, you should push their comp to the level where you think reasonably that's you know, reflects their seniority. And if they're learning faster, you shouldn't be superstitious and like stand in the way of that. And I think that the way that companies harm themselves is that they hire people who are really smart, who may learn faster than average, but then they don't recognize them for that faster learning. And so what happens is like two years later, they're vastly ahead of what the company considers to be their peers. They've kind of waited out the same promotion cycle everybody else has. And they end up leaving because if you look back at the market and the, you know, the distance over time that they've traveled in terms of learning, it's much further and faster uh, than the people around them. And someone outside that that company is going to recognize it. So I think like that's just an example of where if you weren't so superstitious about it, you could probably get better outcomes and your people would perceive that they're being treated more fairly. And it does feel like one of those things where like, the default MBA answer to that question would be pretty different than maybe the one you'd come to if you just thought, how should this work? Do we also see a similar pattern emerge in customers? One thing that I've you know thought about is the customers that who ultimately buy Convictional's products and services and are successful recognize that there's there's going to be this initial period of struggle and it's going to require change management and implementation and corralling resources together. But then there's this sort of pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that if they just, you know, are able to do hard things properly and not expect an easy path, they're actually more likely to be successful. And I'm wondering if that's been your observation too, or maybe how the superstition point dovetails to customers. Yeah. Another way of looking at it is that some things, the things that compound tend to take a long time and they tend to start with small numbers. And the problem is people quit right in that J-curve moment, like at the bottom of the curve, right before it goes up again. And and that really happens because you're measuring the like some kind of short-term uh, evaluation of how well something's going. And it's essentially gone from, you know, some optimized state of an amount of energy in versus, you know, an output. And then it gets worse temporarily. So you're putting a ton of energy into something and it's not really loving you back. And that's kind of like the story of anything long-term is that if you're doing something that compounds, you have to make the initial investment 
and and I think especially this is why companies get less differentiated is if you're doing something and it seems like it's not going well and it's different than what everyone else is doing, it's very hard to justify continuing. But arguably, like all the good things that humanity needs to unlock are down, you know, paths that emotionally feel like that. So, yeah, I feel like you could apply it to so many things. I think I heard this quote from Sam Altman, former president of Y Combinator and founder of OpenAI once, that all of the benefits of compounding happen at the very end. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, Warren Buffett is a good example of this, where like it's as much about age as it is anything else. So you can make, you know, beta or beta plus for a number of decades. But if you diligently pursue it consistently, you can compound it into very, very large numbers at the end, which at the start may be you know, confusing to people who might optimize for something different. We've had many fun conversations with customers or potential customers and have maybe even disqualified them in some cases because they're not willing to go the distance to recognize the benefits of compounding. Change is hard. Yeah. Indeed. Let's jump ahead from high school and talk about your early career. Okay, so, you know, Roger wanted the trappings of adulthood, so plowed through high school as quickly as possible. And all of a sudden, you're in this stage of your life where you're perhaps graduating earlier than your peers were in high school. And instead of going to the social experiment that is college or university, you did something different. And so what did you end up doing next? I mean, the feeling I had in grade 10 was just one that was as motivated by not liking high school as it was by things that I wanted. But I think at a certain point, I decided that I wanted to work in a business and I just wanted to kind of understand it. And I felt like I, I kind of talked to the people who were in my high school business class and they're working on some really weird stuff. And I didn't really understand just from watching my parents run a small business, how those things connected. And I don't think if my parents weren't small business people that I would have understood that what they were working on maybe wouldn't end up being that useful in the long term. And I, I just wanted something like real. And so the way that I thought about it was basically that one lever I had was whether or not I get paid and that ultimately I can do something useful. I just don't know if it's useful enough to justify a job relative to someone else. And so I kind of like cold emailed a bunch of people and and networked a little bit and found my way into uh, this company, GNC. And the proposition was basically that I'll work for free for an indefinite period of time, but I need you to commit for long enough that I get my co-op credits for high school. So it's kind of double dipping in terms of learning about business and practice, as well as getting credits to finish high school. This was possible because I lived at home. I had savings and I was very determined to become independent from like summer jobs. And so I drove like an hour and a half down the highway every day, super early to go to my unpaid co-op. And, and essentially the strategy I figured out was that people are happy to give you their work, especially their least favorite work. And that one way to progress is to just keep doing that work while you ask for more. <laughs> and so essentially what I did was I would, ask for a project, do that project well, keep doing it on an ongoing basis, but then ask for more stuff from other people. And eventually, I think a lot of the like actual work that was happening, you know, the kind of drudge work of filling out and completing spreadsheets and reviewing and checking things and even literally like filling mail slots, those things were all on me. But over time, I got more interesting learning oriented projects. And so when it came time to say like, hey, you know, the options are I go and find a paying job or like I can get paid here. I was so dependent upon that like I would have left this fairly large hole in the way that things operated if I had left. So they decided to pay me and I just kept going down that cycle. And so when I left, I was still doing all of those same like 
kind of unpleasant projects for other people on the team, but I'd also absorbed all of the new things that the company was doing, including at a pretty high level. So I, I started their social media, but because it was a well-known brand, that actually kind of grew quickly. And then they realized that there was this opportunity to sell online. So I started the e-commerce, which again, you know, compared to the field, which was making large sums of money, like online seemed like this sort of side thing. But on reflection, it's like where things are heading. And so that presented this really interesting opportunity to learn at a level that I probably would not have accessed if not for this kind of strategy I used. So GNC is this big retailer, I think that a lot of people are familiar with based out of Pittsburgh. And you were basically working in a Canadian office and basically exploring all of these digital experiments at a time when e-commerce perhaps there was fairly nascent. And so what were you trying to do with their e-commerce? I mean, it seems like all of your learning and asking for projects just continue to level you up into harder problems and more ambiguous territories. But you're at this point now where you're like, okay, I'm going to go figure out e-commerce for you. And what happened next? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, again, one way of looking at it is that in companies, you kind of have these like respect hierarchies and like the things that get the the C-levels and the most uh, central people to their roles are like kind of winning the last war. And so these were people who knew obviously much more than I ever will about retail who held those roles and people respected them for that reason. But they tended to undervalue new stuff and new stuff is more about like learning rate than it is about experience so like no one had run a supplement company online for 10 years before because this was 10 years ago and it just wasn't a thing and therefore it was much more important that you move quickly and learn fast than it was that you had done this before because no one had and i think i mean on reflection that's also a good way to optimize problems for when you start a company but i just basically threw myself into it and again learning rate very high failed at a lot of things, but because of the brand interest, it was it, it grew fast in spite of the tactical mistakes that we made. And yeah, the, the situation by the end was like, we had a fulfillment center and then a marketing function and both basically reported to me. And I was one of two people that had a P&L. But I mean, I was still an 18 year old. I wore suits every day, but it was still this kind of ridiculous situation. And I mean, there's there's even funnier aspects to this. So like they included the Canadian units P&L in the same email that I got sent with the financials for e-commerce. So again, public company, I was one of two basically officers, just a lot of a lot of crazy stuff, but extremely valuable for business learning. I'm sure the uh, gold tie that you wore to work every day also earned you <laughs> a lot of respect in addition to your ability to take on really hard projects as an 18 year old. It's just ridiculous on reflection. Like, again, this was not like some cool thing. Like I just worked all the time and didn't I don't think I was self-aware of how I was perceived, but I was productive. So people had to respect me. There you go. Okay, well, I don't want to jump too far ahead in the GNC story because there's actually some pretty informative learning here that then leads to, you know, us wanting to kind of start convictional together. But can you talk a little bit more about the tactics that you use to grow Canadian e-commerce at GNC? And I, my understanding of GNC is it's a it's a multi-brand retailer. They have stores, they have online. They have their own products, but mostly it's third-party vendors. And so if they're in this world now where they're launching you know, a direct-to-consumer e-commerce website, what did that entail? And what were you basically trying to figure out to basically get them set up to start selling online? Yeah, so there was really two sides. They had their own brand, and the other brands were kind of used as lead gen to get people in the door so that they could sell that brand. And they curated, but not that aggressively. So there was thousands, essentially, of third-party sellers. And so 
when we did online, it was kind of this question of should it just be, you know, the house brand kind of products or should it also include these third party brands where there's more competition? And so kind of two different stories there. Getting the first party brands like the GNC brand live online was quite easy because we had all the assets we needed. So like we had images, descriptions, all of the things that we needed to train stores on how to sell the product basically translate well to a customer trying to evaluate if, it, if it's for them on the internet. So it was easy to get our own brand online. In comparison, and, and you know, there's more to that. So, so the e-commerce software was pretty good. The marketing software was pretty good. But in terms of getting the third-party brands online, we experienced a huge amount of pain. And it seemed like the reason was basically because of the the software we chose, but also the process that we had for getting them online. And it, despite our best efforts, a huge amount of time and money got sank into that effort. And most of the third-party brands that we had in stores, so we were already carrying their physical products and like shipping them around the country successfully. We were not able to get them online successfully because they had to go through this kind of path and process using old school tech in the form of EDI in order to get there. But then EDI doesn't support a lot of the stuff that you need to provide a web experience. You need images and content and all of that separately. So organizing that effort was what I spent most of my time doing and still it, it, it didn't really reach its potential. I want to double click on EDI, pretty important concept in our world and our customer's world. I'm going to pull a Y Combinator interview question here, which is, Explain EDI to me like I'm a 10-year-old and <laughs> not a Roger-level intelligent 10-year-old, but maybe the average 10-year-old. So when you walk into a store and you want to buy a product, somehow that store has to get that product there for you to buy. And historically, before the internet and phones and all of these easy-to-use communication technologies, something was needed in order to for the store to communicate to their supplier that they needed that product. And that's basically EDI. So you can imagine if you have a little store with a small number of products that it's pretty easy to call someone on the phone and say, hey, I need more of these. But if you have a store as big as Walmart or a grocery store, it's absolutely massive stores with tons of products. In those cases, you need something that's a bit more automated. And so historically and unfortunately still, that's primarily done using this technology called EDI. So most EDI is pre-internet today, correct? That's right. Makes sense. And so... Why do businesses continue to use EDI then if it's you know pre-internet and largely inflexible? I feel like at the time that I was at GNC, it made more sense because companies were running their business on software uh, that was primarily run on their own hardware systems. And so it was a way that you could standardize the communication between your systems and someone that you do business with. So it's kind of like the language. And because it had become the standard language, it was very hard to get off of. So if we just all unilaterally decided we wanted to speak a language that wasn't English, you know, we would have to change over so many aspects of how we live, labels, signs, the way we talk, how we educate people. And so it's kind of similar with EDI, where the fact that it's so universal kind of traps people in using it. And 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 in particular, if all of your core systems speak that language, then I don't think beyond a certain point you have any incentive not to use it. And I mean, just maybe some foreshadowing, but it seems like as time goes on, people still use it, even though their core systems don't. So we talk to companies that are still using EDI to enable these connections between them and the companies that they buy from, but their core systems are using APIs and, and cloud software, and, and that's where it stops, in my opinion, making sense. <laughs> so EDI, just a fact of life in the world of B2B trade because of how entrenched it is, and yet... The promise of EDI was that you could implement it once and be able to talk to any buyer or seller globally. And that 
was definitely not the case. And it seems like parties with market power have essentially corroborated EDI into making it its own sort of format. They've made their own flavor. But that has some pain associated with it if you're a trading partner who perhaps has some experience with EDI or may not. And so, you know, if you're a large retailer and you have your own EDI feed, it works great for you, but it might be really difficult for another supplier that you're trying to onboard to actually get set up and integrate with it and start transacting with you. Is that kind of a fair summary? Totally accurate. And further to that, it's it's something where if you don't like people thought that the standard would be able to continue to be used, but it's much like it's much like Internet standards. So while it's nice to have everyone standardized on exactly the same definition of how something works, if anything, if anything about the world changes, it kind of loses relevance quickly. And that's kind of the problem with the Internet is that it's created new ways of transacting, which were not accounted for when the when the standard was made. But the standard, by definition, is so explicit about what it expects and what it can't handle that the only way to introduce those changes is to deviate from the standard somehow. And at GNC, did you, were you aware just how much transaction volume was happening through EDI? Or were you basically like, this technology is really painful, my vendors hate it, and that's basically the extent of my insight here? Or Mostly the latter. I, I think like... I overestimated how many of our suppliers would be able to use it. I just said, you know, like at least the big companies you would think they'd be able to use it. But like the big companies that sold to us were not big enough to use EDI. And I was like, who is big enough to use this? Right. It, it seemed like something that was limited exclusively to companies as, as big as GNC. So, yeah, I, I didn't really think about the global implications. Mostly it just made my life much worse. <laughs> Once you start to dig into the mechanics of EDI and just how much GMV flows between buyers and sellers using EDI, it's kind of like the matrix, but it's very difficult to participate in the matrix unless you're some sort of insider who has basically taken on the cost and complexity to implement it. And so, I mean, let's let's jump ahead to, you know, a few years later when you got recruited to join Shopify Plus, modern e-commerce platform different experience, I'm sure, than working at a large retailer implementing old school B2B trade technologies. Why were you recruited to Shopify Plus? Yeah, it's a good question. I met I met a mutual friend of ours at an event who presented a really compelling picture about what was happening. And it occurred to me that there was it was like parallel universes. So this exposure I'd had to B2B trade and how it worked and and Shopify and how easy it was. And like I even had a, a Shopify store at the time trying to sell this uh, saltwater plant that you can like turn into biomass, kind of like an unrelated story. But it seems so much easier to set up than the technology that we were using. And it didn't make sense to me that there was like no bridge. And so it, I essentially joined saying to myself, you know, there's probably an opportunity for this company, which I respected a lot and still do, successful Canadian tech company to, you know, make this process actually usable for small companies, which it seems like they had done successfully for e-commerce software. And that was just, that to me was just too compelling not to consider it. And there was logistical things I had to like move cities, but uh, that was the assumption I joined on. And so you're recruited to join Shopify. You're a very early member of Shopify Plus, And there's sort of some interest in exploring B2B because why wouldn't you take this B2C e-commerce platform and see if you could sell it and generate money doing B2B transactions. What was that experience like? What did they have you actually do? And what were the conclusions from that customer development process? 
So I think the experiment started with product. And that was one interesting thing or like lesson I learned was, you know, whether you're product led or sales led and the effect that it has on what you build and how sellable that product is. So in that case, I was joining an already existing effort. The product was created by others and conceived of by others. And my role was to help figure out how to commercialize it. And there's kind of a small number of companies on this beta, a few of them successfully using it, and and a ton of demand. And we tried to figure out basically how to sequence that demand, and especially how to adopt a new kind of customer that would not have otherwise worked with Shopify in, in selling it. And so that was the intent. And I spent a lot of time just talking to companies and mostly disqualifying them. And, and what we found was, you know, or, or I guess what I personally started to notice was that depending on who your customer was in a B2B context, the technology that would be optimal for enabling that customer to purchase from you differed quite a bit. And so if you sold to an offline company that was small, kind of in the analogy story that I used, it's very similar where it it's feasible to either enter an order in online or, you know, call someone. And in both of those cases, what Shopify had built was well suited to it. And so, you know, if that's who your customer was, like a clothing brand, especially like a high-end clothing brand, then it made sense. The product that we had made sense. We observed, though, that if you sold to big companies or if you sold to online companies, ironically, obviously, because many of those companies were using Shopify, the technology that would be needed had to be more software enabled, which kind of brought me back to the CDI thing. And so I think the conclusion I had after a few months of talking to customers was basically it wouldn't be enough to just build a great portal experience and like online ordering. It would also have to enable some amount of like system to system purchasing. I just want to summarize the insight, which is that a portal based approach would work great if you are, you know, selling to small offline buyers as a, as a brand and perhaps you have some degree of market power over them, but Walmart as a buyer is never going to log into your portal to buy your shoes. And why is that? I mean, Nike can tell a sneaker shop, hey, this is how you order. Um, do you want your Nikes or not? I, I think in many contexts, that's not the power dynamic that exists in a trade relationship. And if you sell to Walmart, especially if you sell something that's either under their brand or or just a brand that doesn't stand on its own, then you kind of have to go forward with the assumption that you have to do things that suit their purchasing process. And it's more about how they buy rather than how you want to sell. And in those cases, there's a lot of standardization. And so one of the things EDI did well in theory was standardize how you buy things as a large uh, retailer. And that's, I think, why a lot of them adopted it. And so those worlds were kind of colliding where you'd have tons of brands on platforms like Shopify trying to expand and go B2B. And then you have these massive companies, Walmart, but you know, not to pick on them, many others who had used EDI historically to purchase things. And those two worlds didn't talk to each other at all. We're using Walmart as an analogy of a party clearly with with market power. Pretty good execution, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So at a certain point, we basically decide we're going to go and start a company around this. And there wasn't much interest from other players in the market to do this properly. So you started, you left to start Convictional and started basically figuring out, okay, what are we even going to build? And those very early days of Convictional, what mistakes were made? I know some of the mistakes, but I want you to tell you know listeners what some of the early mistakes were made <laughs> once we both started getting working on Convictional. So one mistake I feel like we avoided making was that I recognized the need to specialize as a founder. And so like one one thing I would have regretted if I tried to do that on my own is is not bringing you along because 
even, you know, even if now we kind of have this team around us who arguably are better than we are in their area of focus at the time, it was essential that you could specialize and I could specialize in order to like progress our learning in terms of mistakes. I feel like the thing that we learned was just, there's like this fallacy that most software can be reproduced by an engineer in a weekend. And like, I could build that in a weekend, like Twitter, it's got like tweets and, you know, a timeline and stuff like how hard could that be? And I think, you know, the fallacy is basically that you can write V1 in a weekend and then V2 will cost millions of dollars and require years of learning and, and a ton of customer development time and failure. And, and so I think maybe we just underappreciated a little bit how true that is and that realistically customers don't get value into like V3, V4. And so you somehow have to bridge this like period of time where you're primarily learning how inadequate what you do is for the needs of customers and and it's also hard i guess to make a decision about which of those customers to focus on so i think i think you know my observation is the product stayed pretty similar but the go to market changed a bunch of times and that's because it came closer to truth in terms of uh, how people actually adopt and think about the software but yeah mistakes wise i feel like we made basically all the mistakes we could make <laughs> we we had enough savings to you know paper over them but <laughs> right yeah no it makes sense i think it's hard to say whether they were mistakes that ultimately set us back or that led to actually significant results in the future once we wrapped our head around why we made the mistakes and and how we could have actually corrected for them. One thing that comes to mind is, you know, revenue gating the early product, right? So actually getting people to charge money. And it felt like a mistake to do that because we were asking for pretty large sums of money from customers very early on without having anything, really. And we were trying to build up to their requirements. But on reflection, that may have resulted in a lot of rejection, but it probably instilled a value in us in the team that you know we are actually a business that's going to create products that large companies want to pay money for. And it will be a considered purchase for them. And as a result, that's going to force us to deliver outsized return to those customers. When we went to Y Combinator, it seemed like, you know, a lot of these B2B SaaS startups were just giving away their products for free or pennies on the dollar. I totally agree with that. And it's kind of like, I don't know if it's the insecurity that comes with Canadianness or, or like what uh, led to that for us. But one way to qualify how much someone values your product is to charge for it, which seems obvious, but I think startups almost delay the inevitable conversation about how valuable it really is as long as possible. And I think like the other thing I learned, I guess, would be that criticism is actually good. If people don't like your product, they'll just churn from it. And and so if they have chosen not to churn and they, they ride it out with you and give you critical feedback to push it forward, it's an indication that the problem is important enough that they're kind of in it with you. And I feel like that's also been common the whole time. But also my observation of why Combinator startups in general was that people would say they love the product, but if you attached a more reasonable and sustainable price tag, all of a sudden <laughs> they would churn. It's a great way to validate whether you have something that people are willing to pay for if you just attach a price tag to it and see what happens. I want to go back to mistakes, but double click on the engineering mistakes that we made in the early days. Specifically, I think you know some people listening to this are going to be technical and they're probably interested in understanding, okay, am I going to agree with tech decisions that we've ultimately landed on since having built an actual engineering team? What are some of those early mistakes that we made in terms of tech choices and tech decisions? Very good question. I feel like we 
I guess the jobs to be done we were trying to accomplish, we sort of validated quite early, but the approach we had to accomplishing them, it turned out needed to be quite novel. So bridging kind of the world of like batch process stuff where you do a bunch of work and then at the end you see if it was successful and this more modern world of like API-based events where something happens, it's reflected in API, but it's real time. The, bridging those two worlds together is actually quite architecturally complex. And and so I would say the first versions that I wrote, as an example, I wrote it in JavaScript with like a node backend, and which is nice, you know, you can like iterate quickly. The one painful lesson I learned there was the, the necessity of basically static types. So saying this is a number and this is a string and the difference has meaning in the code and, you know, not just when it's running. Like those things, we basically had to start from scratch because those things, while not essential in all domains, various big companies use node backends. In our domain of kind of bringing in arbitrary data from other systems, especially data that doesn't explain itself. So like EDI data doesn't actually have a type, it's kind of all strings. And you have to figure out whether it's a number or something else. Doing that in a type unsafe language is actually deeply flawed. So it's like, you gotta rewrite there. The other thing we learned was around kind of how to make the processing of those events durable and the meaning that those events have compared to some contexts. So like some, some applications are sending a high volume of emails. If one email gets missed, you have to think about like what's the business value of the failure of that email sending. And I would argue it's meaningful, but not, you know, significant. In our case, we're literally dealing with money. So, so like this sort of move fast and break things is turned out to be entirely inappropriate when it, when it comes to areas of, of actual money changing hands. And, and like, there's so many kind of architectural trade-offs that you have to make to make sure that those things are durable and happen reliably. And, and I feel like every possible way that it could go wrong from like the seller's data, the buyer's data, it did. And so over time, you know, we've adopted this practice of ops is like an active, an active thing that we do. And like every time something goes wrong or, or happens, it's unexpected. We escalate it to ourselves via email. And we've continued to do that even as we've scaled usage a lot. And so in the early days, that meant that most orders required some kind of human intervention. Now, almost all orders require no human intervention. But the way that we got there was just lots of sending ourselves emails and, and like iterating how we did things. And definitely a lot of mistakes made. That resulted in learning, ultimately. Yeah, <laughs> ultimately. Learning, learning is hard, though. I feel like that's the other thing is like, I feel like because of growth mindset, learning's become the sort of meme where people are sort of like, yeah, I love learning. And it's like, if you look, I mean, this is kind of unrelated, but I feel like it's still related to the point you made. It's like, if you look at people's resume and they've held the same role for like seven years straight, it's like, are you learning learning or are you like learning just enough to keep doing the same thing that you're doing? Because like there's a sort of rate of entropy of stuff that you know, like not 100% of what you learned last year will be relevant this year and you'll have to learn new stuff. But like to me, learning is like significantly moving the needle. Like you used to believe X and now you believe Y and you had to go through some painful experience to bridge those things. I think that one thing that people often fail to incorporate into their learning process is reflection. And there's often just too much distraction and stimulation to justify the actual like opportunity cost of slowing down and pausing. So this relates to my next question on culture. We've been very deliberate in terms of how we've designed culture at convictional and communication. And one of those examples is that we don't use Slack 
we're email only, right? That's a very important point that we try to communicate to candidates that are looking to join Convictional. Can you tell me more about the reasoning behind why we don't use Slack and prefer email and, and documentation? One observation I had, I guess, about Shopify was that you had a lot of really smart people and that different people would depend on each other for different things. So like no one person could solve these super hard problems on their own. It required this kind of mix of people who think differently, but that required a lot of communication to bridge if you wanted to go fast. And so the solution to that was basically a ton of Slack messages at all hours, you know, confirming assumptions with the people you knew were in the best in a certain area. And I saw at one point an internal report that said that the average person was sending a message every 11 minutes and spending more than two and a half hours a day using Slack. And I kind of thought about like, you know, what are the other uses of that time? Well, it could be, you know, talk to customers. It could be hang out with my friends, my family, people that I care about. It could be write something down so that every time someone has that question in the future, I'm like reducing the amount of Slack burden overall. And I, I think, I don't know how many people there were that were thinking that critically about it. And and I think like our our culture initially was almost a criticism of that, where we wanted to be able to spend uninterrupted time focused. And then we realized as we grew that it had to become more nuanced, that we we wanted people to understand that it's okay to take, you know, an entire half day off the grid and focus on, you know, writing something that will live on for a long period of time because you don't lose knowledge or learning that way. I've had very heated debates with friends over dinner and wine where I've been like, we don't use Slack and we're able to function very well as a result. And they're mind blown and just completely disagree that that's even possible. How do you stay aligned in a fully remote work environment in the example that you're sharing where there's no synchronous communication happening? I would argue a lot of the best, most dominant technology products that exist now were created in a time where there is IM, but it was not nearly as company-wide widespread. It was more like team-specific, like Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, all of those existed before Slack did. Somehow they created trillion dollar companies. I think alignment is more like, you shouldn't hire people who need to be aligned. (laughs) You, You should hire people who kind of like understand the philosophy and the values with which you approach things, but who have better ideas than you do in the area that they're taking responsibility for. And I would argue a lot of companies start to compromise on that at a certain point. And and that's where you need a lot more like aligning work is is to like give people the tactics that pair with the strategy of the company. And to me, strategy is just like, how do you engage with customers? What is the definition of those customers? What don't you do? Who don't you serve? And once you define those things, you know, I think our engineers know better than I do in many ways, what builds up, like what things to do that meet that definition of the customer that we have. And so I think like, I think it's worked excellently to our current uh, stage. And the question is how you scale that. So I think you and I genuinely have these beliefs and have this kind of like these learning experiences that have led us to have conviction in this way of communication. The question is like, how do you grow the team large? And I'm sure we'll learn a lot doing that, but I'm quite convinced that it can be done. Well, if you look at a company like GitLab, which has uh, not only everything written down, but it's all publicly available, all of their team handbooks, how they manage people, you know, compensation bans and so on. It's all documented properly. And so I think a company of that size and scale where you're on a track to actually going public can function adequately by believing in this sort of asynchronous first approach. I think that like burnout is probably the central problem in business right now. And that, you know, at any given time, you have to focus on the bottleneck to progress. So like, 
the, the team is smart. The mission we're working on is is good. You know, the product that we have, I think, is relevant to customers. But if we burn out, all of those other things will suffer significantly. And this whole Zoom meetings all day is clearly not sustainable. I think people recognize that. They meme it. They take time off. Companies are literally shortening their week. But when you shorten the week, it's just like concentrating the Zoom meetings. It's not really solving the problem. Somehow we need to be able to communicate and share knowledge in a way that doesn't require, you know, one-to-one person contact for all for all forms of com- communication. Obviously, it has its, you know, merits in some cases. But if you project this forward, people are going to burn out. I, I mean, the joke I make is like, I don't want anyone on the team, on our team, like if they want to leave and start a business, I'm obviously supportive. But but like, no one on the team should leave and become like a van life YouTuber, right? Because they're so burned out. Like. This is really an important thing to humanity and probably a way to have significant impact and and burnout is like the enemy of that. And I think a lack of self-awareness gets in the way of the goals of reducing burnout. And it's not to say that, oh, one is, you know, self-aware, achieve the state of enlightenment and therefore they will never be get burned out. Life happens. But it certainly helps to be able to have a sense of awareness about, you know, am I redlining and am I doing this for way like longer than I should be? and actually take steps and measures to prevent that from going any further to a point of self-destruction. So one piece of this is, you know, self-awareness. And we really like to work with people who are self-aware. And if they're self-aware and they're vulnerable in sharing that, we can actually work with them better. And one tool we have internally for doing this is user manuals. Can you talk a little bit about user manuals and why we do them and ultimately what they are? I think user manuals is something that there was someone at a Facebook executive who had like a, a user manual that was like, here's how to like get what you want from me kind of thing. And then like people started to view user manuals as this sort of, it's like a way of asserting power. Like if only managers have them, it's like, here's how you can get what you want from me. Here's how you will engage with me. Kind of like a one way thing. I think we just tweaked that and said like, that should probably apply to everyone in the company. And like this notion of like flexibly working the way that you want to and, and like rules of engagement it's useful to have that understanding of everyone that you work with, regardless of where they occupy in the org chart. So yeah, I, I we all, I think, really early started writing user manuals for our, in the initial people joining our teams. And then we asked them to do the same. And then as time has gone on, we just have this giant repository of kind of a one-pager life story. Here's how I like to work. Here's how I get your needs met from me. Here's my strengths, weaknesses of everyone in the company, which is extremely useful because... Without that, it does make it harder to get your needs met and likewise harder for people to understand the ways that you like to engage and also what your boundaries are. Now, I want to wrap up with maybe one or two more questions. And the question I want to end on is just where we're going, right? We've assembled this great team. We have amazing customers. We have a great product, a huge market opportunity that seems to be infinite. And one thing that really stood out to me was recently in a company-wide town hall, you had mentioned that we'd completed our five-year roadmap or we were on track to complete our five-year roadmap in less than a year. Okay, team's insanely productive. What do you envision the next five years of Convictional will look like? What will what will we pursue over the course of the, that five-year period? I think when we built the roadmap that it was a lot of, or I guess when I did, and obviously with a lot of feedback from the team and customers, it was it was primarily oriented around table stakes functionality. Like how do you take what exists now and make it better? And I realized that the bar in terms of what exists now is just so low that the difference between, you know, something that's marginally better than what exists and the theoretical maximum of what exists 
is very large. And so, you know, a lot of the that that roadmap was focused on things we could build that, that were like, you know, uh, single sign on. And, and we found a really short path to building really high quality single sign on and, and in a lot of areas. But when I think about what we can build in the future, it's more based on what is the theoret- theoretical maximum of this thing. So, so like if it's supplier onboarding, well, ideally there's like no effort at all, right? Like ideally both side, you know, I have some software, you have some software. Those systems pretty much come together magically. They, they map everything that needs to be mapped. They sync everything that needs to be synced and we're set up. And it's like this, you know, it, it's just about consent, basically. I'm consenting to giving access to this data and then we're done. And so because that's the theoretical maximum, you know, what I'm trying to do in the future and, and what I think we should aim for is to think about, okay, there's this no effort consent handshake process that has to happen to share data with each other. And then there's all these initiatives underneath that. So whether it's like augmenting product data with AI in order to avoid a person having to go in and add attributes to a product, those are investments worth making, which again, like we talked about, they compound. So you need a lot of data and you need a lot of time in order to like reach that state. But because it's possible to reach that state, I think that's what we should be aiming for. And that to me, like, you know, lesson learned, that's probably more likely to take a while. Although maybe we'll do a part two to this in a year and we'll be eating our words that... <laughs> we'll be done again, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> this has been a really fun conversation with you, Roger. I just am so grateful I get to be in this journey with you and learn from you every single day. I know the team is super appreciative of your leadership and what you bring to the table too. So I hope our listeners enjoyed this conversation. It was a lot of fun and we'll do it again soon and talk a little bit more about maybe what some of those specific hard problems are that we're going to solve in the next five years. Hey everyone, thanks for checking out this episode of the Legends of Retail podcast. We covered a lot of ground today around company building, communication, and of course, some gold nuggets that you won't want to miss about B2B trade. We talked about how you can proactively promote your employees before your competitors get to them. We talked about the flaws of electronic data interchange in a world that is post-internet. We talked about email instead of Slack to prevent employee burnout while encouraging the use of written documentation to get information across company networks. We talked about why writing employee user manuals is a fantastic tool for helping people get to know each other in remote organizations. That's it for today. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. My email is chris at convictional.com. That's chris at convictional.com in case you have any feedback for me. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you and see you next time.